We've been in a sermon series that we have been learning about the names of and characteristics and character of God. The sermon series is entitled Knowing God. We've been learning about him. And we have been cycling through the names that God has revealed to us in, in scripture. We've learned why it's important to know the names of God. We've learned the significance and the power behind knowing the names of God. It's interesting. I'm talking myself through what we just went through. The power of praise and worship cannot be understated. If you've ever seen a professional sports team prepare for a game, ever been there beforehand to watch them get ready for the, the game, what you'll see is them go as hard in prep as they do when the game actually starts. Because it's impossible to get to a certain level of athleticism cold. You got to get up and get into it. You got to stretch, make sure all your muscles are warm, you got to make sure you're ready to go. So when the enemy starts coming at you, you're prepared. I'm mighty afraid too many of us enter into a worship service cold. We miss the benefit of the pregame warm-up. <laughs> That's what praise and worship, I liken it to pregame preparation. I'm probably the last one you need to be making a whole lot of sports analogies, but I know this, you got to get ready. I know you got to get ready. All right, and when you come in hot already, all the coaches will tell you when somebody's, somebody's hidden, give them the ball. Even if that ain't the play we practice, give them the ball. 
Let them do what they're going to do. Came to tell you right now, you got to get ready to get the ball. You got to be ready coming in. Leave it out there. From now on, if you don't leave it as best you can, leave it. Come in here and get washed. Come in here and get full. Come in here and get filled up. So you can go out there ready to run on. Not all the way, but just a little bit further. So you can get back here again and get filled up again. I don't think we can give you something that can take you all the way on a Sunday. We can give you a little bit more to get you from this place to what you got to go through in the next few, few days. I pray you. You'll do that. Today we're going to look at a name that's going to be hard on each of us. All right? It's going to be hard on us. And you'll see why as I, go, as I go through what it means. One foundational scripture I want to give you for it, and there'll be some others, is Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. Let me read it for you. Moses wrote these words. But Abraham said, but Abram, forgive me, but Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit, inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. That's it. Just that, that passage. Because the action part of it was at the beginning. Abraham, and Abram said, O sovereign Lord. O sovereign Lord. Yeah. Today we want to talk about Adonai. Adonai, which means the Lord. The Lord. Adonai. It means the Lord. So I hope you watched what happened in that passage I just read. If you follow, he called him Lord and then started protesting in the passage of Scripture. Let me make it a little bit more plain. Oh, one who is in charge of everything. And then I start telling you what you can't do. You're the Lord. But you have made a promise it doesn't appear you can keep. Adonai. Last week I saw somebody that I, I, I don't know real well and I called out to her by the name I knew. All right? Called out to her. And I thought I got it right because I got her attention. Maybe just because I was loud. She turned around and soon as she turned around, her reaction told me that I had gotten it counter right, but not all the way. Um, 
I had used a shortened form of her name that she wasn't particularly pleased with. But it's a name I knew. All right. And, and, and she corrected me quickly, told me, you know, I prefer blank, which was good with me. I mean, now I know, and I made a note that I call her that no more. All right. But and we had a pleasant conversation. But but God has some strong feelings, too, about what we call him. He has some strong feelings about how we refer to him. And too often you and I refer to him in too, um, I think the word I want to use is too casual a manner. We're too commonplace when we come to him. We want to make God our buddy. There's never a time in existence when God deserves to be our buddy. There's never a time at all when God and you are cool enough for y'all to fist bump. All right? And we think that's that. We think that's appropriate. But we ought to have some things in our life that we keep in a certain space. There ought to be some respected people in your life who you never want to bring down to a certain level. I mean, I, I don't care how cool I ever got with my granddad. There was just some way I wasn't going to holler at him. You know, what's up, man? I wasn't going to ever say that to him. All right? And that's not because he was so um, dogmatic about how I approached him. It's simply the level of respect I had for him and I couldn't use that terminology with him. And I think some of the problem we have is that we've broken down some barriers in our community where everyone has to be so very approachable. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that uh, at a certain point. But one, sometimes in breaking down those barriers of approachability, we also bring down the barriers of respect. And that's the problem here with how we're dealing with God sometimes. And when we start bringing down those barriers of respect, we sometimes lose the significance of who this person is and what they're able to do. Now, I say person. We use these anthropomorphic statements about God, which means human-like statements, because that's how we best understand who he is. But ain't nothing human about God. All right? He ain't like us. He created us. He's higher than us. He has the ability to do more than you and I can ever think or imagine. And to put the human frailties that we have on him is diminishing who God is. And I don't want us to ever do that. The name Adonai is used over 300 times, over 300 times in the Old Testament. And it's kind of difficult to see in the Bibles that have been transcribed into English because sometimes Two words are used for this word, two words. Sometimes we use Yahweh, and then other times we use Adonai, all right? But I told you the last time we got together that when we use Yahweh, then the, the Jehovah, then the capital letters are always used. It's always all capital letters. And that means that the writer originally used the term Yahweh. But when we use, when we use Adonai in addressing God, and you'll find also Jesus. But when you use Adonai, it's a capital L and then O-R-D. means Lord. Now, it's important. It's important to know who you're, who you're referring to. Um, but it's, it's also interesting, too, in that the use of this term also validates something that we've already talked about. Now, when we use Elohim, that's always referring to Say always, generally referring to a plural being. 
Same thing with Adonai. What does that mean, Reverend Sparks? That means we're talking about the Trinity. All right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When we use that term, that's what plural means, the three of them, three in one. Three in one, that's important because that, val that validates our belief system that God is a triune being. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Those three things matter because those three beings take such an active role, not only in our salvation, but in our daily walk. All right. We need to know all about that. If you bring it down to its most common use, Adonai in its singular usage means master. It's what a slave would have referred to as their slave master, Adon. Adon. And it's used it's, it's whenever the slave master would reference them, they would turn around and say Adon, to reference him as Adon. And that's what he is to us, y'all. We're stating that God is Lord of all and that he's supreme over all his subjects. He's Lord of all. This is crucial now. And this is where you and I buckle up now. Buckle up. This is where we all get into trouble. I got a good friend who tells me all the time, he and I always having conversations about our walk and our witness, trying to strengthen each other on a regular basis. And he said, most people don't have much of a problem talking about God as their Savior, Jesus Christ as their Savior. But we all struggle when it comes to making him the Lord of our lives. That's the struggle you and I have. It ain't the one and done salvation thing. It's the everyday walking witness part that you and I get into trouble with on a very daily basis. Because guess what? We want to be in charge of us as opposed to thinking that someone else is in charge of us. And so uh, one writer, Bob Shogren, gave a great analogy of how we can maybe start changing this. He describes the different attitudes of us about theology as the difference between a dog and a cat. A dog and a cat. How many folk in here got a dog? Raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, they, yeah. How many of y'all got a cat? Nobody. Y'all hating on the cats for us. Four five ain't got no love for cats, huh? And, and ain't but a few dogs up in here. Yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> anyway. A dog says this when he looks at you. This is a dog's worldview. A dog's worldview is you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, and you love me. You must be God. That's how a dog looks at things. All right? Cat. Cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, and you love me. I must be God. Difference between dogs and cats breaks down to how we too. You the Lord. Yeah. The dogs have theology and the cats have meology. And many of us have a worldview that is centered in meology. It's easy for us to walk around thinking all the time that life is all about us. Don't raise your hand this time. But how many of y'all live in a space where you know somebody, you deal with somebody on a regular basis who seems to think that the world is centered on them? 
that everything is all about them. And in fact, most of your disagreements with them is when you have to put them in a space and know life ain't all about you. Yeah. Well, imagine how God feels when you and I go around thinking that it's all about us and it's never about him. Imagine from God's vantage point. Yeah, we've been given good gifts, valuable grace. But to what end? What's the purpose of him blessing us? Is it because he likes how we look in that car? In that outfit, in that house, on that job? Is it is it because it pleases God that we all successful? Does it please God when you drive down the street and all that you got and, and there's one of his children on the side of the road with a sign out that says, give me a little something? How does God feel about that? So let's look at Adonai in the Old Testament and see how some of the patriarchs dealt with him. First of all, Abraham. We find that this passage of scripture has him arguing with God. I know, I know none of us are, are, are not presumptuous enough to say we would ever argue with God, but we do. We, we, we do. We, we argue with God. Yeah. Look, look, look. We'll read it to you again now with the benefit of what I've just told you. Read that passage of scripture. Oh, Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is a servant? Eliad is a servant. Oh, sovereign. Oh, one in charge. Oh, one who creates everything. What can you give me? Now, even from our vantage point now, we know that's offensive. That you claim me as Lord and then you question my ability to provide for you? The interaction that we see between Abram and God in this instance wouldn't be so bad if God, God hadn't already shown up in Abram's life and proved some things to him. Abram, chapter 12, had already gotten up from his country at God's direction and left it. All right? He'd already left it. He'd already lived enough in lifetime that by the chapter 12 of Genesis, we see that Abram had started and men, it said men, had started to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, they had gotten to a point in life where they realized that all this stuff going on down here, I don't have enough in me to deal with it. And so I need to call on somebody bigger, somebody greater. And so they started calling on the name of the Lord. That's in chapter and so he obeyed the Lord, but then he resorted to lying in the next chapter when they challenged who his wife was because he was afraid. He was afraid. Now, we're still talking about the same Lord who had brought him to this place. There's a whole lot more story in that. That's the sermon right there. And what he did when he got to Egypt about lying about Sarah being his wife. But we move on past that to chapter 13. And Abram and Lot separated. They separated. If you know some Bible, if you don't, that's when Lot went down and he ended up moving next to a pretty bad neighborhood called Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, yeah. It was in a bad zip code. All right. And Abram ended up having to go down there and get him because they were about to get him. All right. They were about to get him and take care 
of him down in Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife loved the world so much that the Lord let her stay there. Yeah, that's when she turned into a pillow of salt. Yeah, because she kept looking back at what she believed. In. And so God said, you just stay there with me if you want to. So be careful what you keep wondering about yesterday. Because God might leave you back in yesterday. You might not physically be there, but he might leave you in that space for a long time. And I can tell you, moving on is a blessing. Moving on is a blessing, man. And, and so Abram, no, oh, Abram uh, uh, in, in verse 17 of chapter 13 tells God, uh, uh, is talking to God, and he's looking at his blessings, and God tells him, go walk through the length and breadth of the land, and wherever your foot trods, I'm going to give that to you. Whatever your foot strikes is going to be yours. God is telling him, I am blessing you. You, you, you ought to have faith in me. And so Abram had enough in his experience with God to be able to call him sovereign or Lord. And yet he questioned. Now, I'm telling you this for a reason. I want you to understand that the times you go through having some doubtful experiences are normal because not many of us are having these daily one-on-one -on -one conversations like Abram had with God, and still this man who has this intimacy with God still had humanness in him. And so he questioned, and so it's normal for you to have issues when you ask the Lord, Lord, is it going to happen? Can you do it? God is not, God is not offended by those questions because he already knows all the answers. He simply knows it's part of our weakness as humans to be in that space. And so your space to grow in your faith is understanding that God can't lie. And when he tells you something, it's going to come true. It's not, it may not be in your time frame. It may not be in your imaginings of when it will happen, but it will come to pass. And all we see God doing in his conversations with Abram is walking him through the growth process of learning him. And Abram had to be put in a place where the Lord had to confirm all of his promises by entering into an irrevocable covenant with him. And he said, look at the sands on the ground. Your children will outnumber even the sands on the ground. He had already shown them the stars in the sky. Now think about this. When you're looking, God's talking to you. You're looking at the stars in the sky, and God is telling you that your descendants will outnumber even the stars in the sky. Maybe, maybe some of y'all haven't seen a sky like that. Maybe some of y'all have lived in the city all your life, and you don't really know what a, a sky looks like when it's full of stars. You need to be away from all the city lights that sometimes blind the perspective of a star-filled night. I mean, so numerous that your eye can't even focus on the stars. It's that many, and God said, you're descended. Now, this is to a man who's almost 100 years old who has not one child. Not one child. He's being promised that you're going to have enough descendants that they will outnumber the stars in the sky. What he didn't understand, and what I want you to understand this morning, is that God was speaking spiritually. Not physically. Yeah, because you and I, as believers today, are part of Abram's spiritual descendants. And that's why he can say they'll outnumber the stars in the sky because every Christian believer today 
comes in with Abram as our grand, grand, granddaddy. All right, that's what God was telling him, and God has kept that promise that He made to Abraham. Abraham was suffering from meology. His view of the world was based on what he could see, what he could do, what he could touch, and what he could deal with. And I came to tell you that God elevated his elevated his faith, and that's why you and I have righteousness accounted to us because of Abram's faith or Abraham's faith. Not righteous in and of ourselves. We're not, that would be self-righteousness. But we're righteous that's counted to us, just like Abraham. But Abram, Abraham had to walk through that. Had to walk through it, just like you and I. So keep growing in that respect. Adonai was teaching Abraham two truths that run through the Bible. I want you to write this down. You don't get anything else. This is the Bible lesson you'll have for the rest of your life. And that is that God owns everything. All right, that's one. It's two things. God owns everything. God owns everything. Two, we must obey God. <laughs> God owns, or let me put it in the context of today's message, Adonai owns everything. Everything. Everything you've been blessed with. I know you found her. I know she was cute. I know you promised to marry her and keep her and protect her. She belongs to God. She's not yours to do what you want to do with. You can't treat her any kind of way you want to treat her because you're messing with God's property. Yeah. And I don't care what resources he gives you to take care of her. See that house up on that hill? That's where me and my baby going to live. God gave it to you. He did. You didn't, you didn't, you couldn't have put the package together to put you in space to be blessed like God blessed. God made it happen. And let me tell you this, even if he don't give you one of them houses on the hill, all right, even if he doesn't, even if he gives you a small apartment in the corner of the complex that you and she lived in, it's still his. And she's still here. Because God's definition of success has nothing to do with your definition of success. A whole lot of folk have lived wonderful lives together and nobody ever knew who they were. Nobody ever saw them. They never made an impression in AL.com. No. In fact, they could die and nobody would even know really that they were gone except God found favor in them. God bless them. There are plenty of people who live like that. We live in the I want to be seen, I want to be known, I want to be talked about moment. And we think that less than that means we don't have success. I came to tell you, that's a lie. That's a lie the devil wants you to believe because he'll have you chasing after that notoriety. He'll have you chasing after the things that you believe will get you recognized and seen, and he'll have you distracted. While you're chasing all that, you're not paying attention to what the Lord is telling you. If you will let him be Lord of your life, he'll lead you and guide you. It's his responsibility. It's his responsibility to take care of you. And in fact, it's interesting that you, 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 you know who he is. These are essentials of your faith. Everything belongs to God. We got to obey God. In one of the recent books, a writer named Larry Crabb wrote this. There are two basic approaches to life. Two pathways. One creates pressure and the other provides freedom. All right? 
in the old way of life, you've decided that what you want that you what you want most out of life is within your reach, and you're doing everything you can to make sure you get it. That's the old way. In the new way, the new way of life, you realize that what you want most is beyond your reach, and you're trusting in God for the satisfaction you seek. Full stop. See, that second part ain't sexy. <laughs> that, that don't get you there. That, that ain't sexy at all. Yeah. You, Rich, want him. You want him. And with him comes whatever he provides. And it's that level of uncertainty that creates problems for us. You want God and whatever he brings. Yeah. Ain't nobody say amen, Rev. Yeah, amen. No, you want him. And when you can frame your life by wanting God, now think about it. When you want him, you want to please him, think about how you live your life trying to please God. Think about the things you do because it's not outward. No, it's faith-filled. It's devoted. It's sacrificial. All these words that don't mean a whole lot in this context that we live in right now. Abram learned to do that, learned to follow the Lord. Moses rejected God as his master. It's the same Moses that you and I talk about now. They make movies about Moses. Moses struggled with God. Even though Moses had been brought off the hill, I told you the last time we got together that Moses had been on the backside of the mountain working with his father-in-law, uh, 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 sheep farm for 40 years. God blessed him on the side of the mountain to be introduced to him. The same Moses who had been brought out of Holy Witness Protection Program to go and live. That's where he was. He was in the Holy Witness Protection Program because he had killed a man in Egypt. And God had sent him off somewhere. Allowed him to go and hide out. And God brought him back to Egypt. Remember now, there was a fugitive warrant out for Moses. Pharaoh said, wherever you find him, bring him to me. Because he killed an Egyptian. And God said, I'm going to walk you down the middle of the street in Egypt. Not only am I going to walk you down the middle of the street in Egypt, you're going to walk up in the palace and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You talking about somebody that's got to have some courage. After hiding for 40 years, now I got to come back and tell the baddest man in the, in the world that God told me. Moses immediately gets to make an excuse. Uh, Lord, he said, uh, he said, I I've never been really eloquent. Uh, 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 he said, uh, uh, neither in the past nor have, have you spoken to your servant before. He said, I'm slow of speech and tongue. This is what Moses said to Adonai. This is the same one who's been taking care of him all these years. He's making protests and Think about the, uh, the irony in the fact that Moses refers to him as Adonai, refers to him as, and then gives him an excuse on what he can't do. You're the Lord. You can take care of everything, but I don't know that you can put words in my mouth that will make, make me eloquent. And God hears him. This is what I want you to understand. You and I might get to a place where God says, go in there and say blank. And you say, why? Well, Lord, I don't know if I can do that. God says to him, guess what? I'm going to send your brother with you. And I'm going to let your brother come in there and, and, and he'll speak for you. Aaron can go with you. 
Aaron just sitting over there eating apples. He don't even know what's going on. And God tell him, get up and go there with Moses and do what I tell you to do. I mean, because God can use whomever he wants to use. You know, Aaron is a side character in this whole discussion between God and Moses. Moses has to learn to love God deeply. And sometimes God sends somebody alone to ride with you so y'all can learn to be faithful together. You ought to be glad if God gives you a partner to ride with. If they can be your spouse, that's a good thing. But maybe they're just a good friend. Maybe it's a sibling. Whoever it is, God has given you somebody that you can be with. Moses learned in all of his dealings with the Lord that even if the Lord gets mad at you, which he did in that instance, he did. But he said, when he said to him, I don't know what to say. And how do I know that God got mad at him? Well, Jesus put it this way to tell me that God gets frustrated sometimes when our faith doesn't rise to the level it should. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Why do you do that? Don't you know that's offensive to me? You keep calling me Lord. You keep acknowledging that I'm in charge, that everything is on me, and then you don't do what I ask you to do. These old, patri old, old Testament patriarchs learned the hard way, but what about in the New Testament? What, what happened in the New Testament with the word Adonai? How do we see that God reveals himself in the New Testament? Well, first of all, you should know this. We've got a messed up view. This is what I started out telling you about, and I want you to really hear me on this. We've got a messed up perspective when it comes to what happened in the New Testament because all we ever talk about is salvation. And there's absolutely nothing because that's huge in it. But we talk so much about salvation, we downplay lordship. And all we say is, he saved me. All right? Well, what about today? <laughs> and what about tomorrow? What's he doing for you today? He saved me. He saved me. Watch this. The word that's used for Adonai is used 747 times. The New Testament. In the book of Acts alone, the beginning of the church and how it came to be, it's used 92 times. And that writ alone, 92 times. But believe it or not, he just called saved you two times. Two times. Now think about what the importance ought to be. Yes, it's crucial that Jesus Christ died for us. But you and I are believers, and we know while it's significant that he died for us, what's more important is that he lives for us. He's living right now for us so that I can live in a righteous way. And so if I just lay on my salvation, then I'm, I, can be, I can be saved and hellish at the same time. Or as we say, keeping it real. Keeping it real with what? What's around us? That's what we talk about. I can be saved, but I don't have to change. I don't have to let him control my mouth. But I'm saved. He died for me. 
Yeah. I'm saved, but I'm also ratchet. Y'all see them t-shirts. We, we brag about this stuff. In other words, there's no, there's no standard for me to live by. Yeah, I don't give any indication that I've been called and set upon to live a certain way because that's old folk stuff. I don't have to walk around dressed like that and acting like that. That's what they used to do. Today is a real active church. Well, it's a real active church that's not setting an example, which is why you got a generation of folk who don't want to follow it because they can't tell the difference in anything we do and what the world does. Because we want to be our own Lord. We won't let them know that there is someone bigger than us that we follow, who sets a standard that we follow. Can I tell you, his standard and his walking, I mean, and his teaching transcend time. That means they don't go out of style. Yeah, they don't go out of style. They're good for every generation if we'll follow them. But if, in fact, you don't want to live that way, then you just keep yourself as, as the Lord. Look at this. The gospel according to Jesus. The gospel according to Jesus. The writer, um, John MacArthur, who writes a lot that we listen to. John MacArthur's book helps us understand that the centrality of Jesus' lordship in our lives cannot be understated. This is, what the, this is what the New Testament says, Acts 2 and 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the Lord, will be saved. Acts 2 and 36 says, God has made this Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ, or, and Savior. Acts 16 and 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. The centrality of him being the Lord of our lives. Romans 10 and 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, based on that belief, you will be, you'll be saved. The Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Watch this now. Watch this. And it means he has dominion over our lives. Dominion over our lives. That means he's sovereign. He's in charge of everything we do. And can I tell you, we spend a lot of time, according to MacArthur in his book, and it's interesting that he says this, making Christ the Lord. You and I don't have the power or authority to make God anything. Either he is or he isn't in charge. Either you accept him as being the Lord of your life, or you keep on trying to do it yourself and tell me what results you get with you in charge. Tell me how you, how you can bless yourself. I can tell you right now, you can keep on moving and you'll wake up one morning and you'll realize that you've been a poor manager of your own life because you've been in charge of it. And you don't know how to correct the problem or the mess that you uh, created. Jesus is Lord of all. And he, the biblical mandate that we have the Bible tells us that it's for both sinners and saints not to make him the Lord, but to accept the fact that he is Lord, that he's the Lord. But according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we love dealing with what he called cheap grace. Cheap grace, or as the new terminology is, easy believism. Faith that doesn't require anything of you. Yeah. 
He says, Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. It's an abstract idea. It's a myth. The fact that you can have Christ and not be his disciple. It's, it's not, it doesn't mean anything. There is no trust in God. Not the work that he did with Christ on the cross. Easy believism. If we would follow Jesus, then we have to do certain things. We have to take certain steps. The first step, which follows the call, is to become his disciple. That's the example in the Bible. When he called every one of his disciples, they did what? They followed him. They lived like he lived. They walked like he walked. They learned to even talk like he talked. And he empowered them to do more than they were empowered to do before. And so how do you do this? How do you become one who is following Jesus as the Lord of your life? First of all, you need to learn how to serve sacrificially. Here we go. You're about to get in trouble, Reverend Spar. You need to learn how to serve sacrificially. Are you holding back in any way? Holding back how you serve, how you worship, what you do? It's time for you to give the Lord all that you have to give him because that's what we expect him to do. We expect him to give us all that he has. We expect him to bless us with the bounty of his, of his kingdom. That's what we expect from him. And yet, and yet we don't do the same thing. Joshua said it. Joshua said it. He laid a line down in the sand, angry when he said, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He said it. Now, now if, 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 if you're not in a ministry right now, find out where you should be. Find out what you should be doing. And then devote yourself to that ministry because that's what he's saying. Learn how to serve sacrificially. And can I tell you, it ain't easy. Oh, no, it's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be at times that you don't want to. It's going to cost more than you want it to. But this is what service is. And if he is the Lord and it's required of us to follow what the Lord says, then we have to give our all to him. Not only do we have to learn how to serve sacrificially, we got to watch our words. I think more than anything, we condemn our own faith by how we talk. Oh, yeah, by our witness. We condemn. Not, uh, it, faith is important between you and the Lord. But if you're going to be a witness for him, it's also important how you live. Because somebody else will only read you as the Bible in their life. Now, that's frightening. That every day you walk in to wherever you go, whatever you do, you're a living epistle to somebody who might not ever pick up one of these. But if you say you believe in it and you're living this out in your life, they ought to see something in how you live that lets them know that it's okay to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But if everything you do tears down the tenets in this, how in the world do you ever think you're going to draw somebody else in? There ought to be some small signs that come up. Even non-believers, when you have the Thanksgiving dinner at work, will turn to somebody who appears to know how to pray and say, why don't you pray for us? They might not even believe in prayer. But, but I see you pray all the time over your food. So do you mind offering a prayer for the food? Why? Because it's something about you. That makes me look at that. And little by little, day by day, you might get to a place when you can say, hey, 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 you're having this fellowship meeting. 
at the church. And it's easy. All you got to do is come. If you want to, you can wear your favorite sports jersey or your college jersey. All you got to do is come. You might draw me in under that occasion just to come and sit with us. And who knows what they'll hear. And the reason they'll say yes is because they believe you're sincere in what you do. That's the reason they'll come. Yeah. Now, we don't expect that they're going to come that first day. Maybe the Lord could and jump up and shout and run down the aisle and say, I'm going to be a believer today. But maybe that's just one time. And maybe the next year they'll come and say, hey, y'all doing that dinner again this year? I love them pies y'all had out there. They might not even like what the preacher's saying. But if they come back for the pie, bring them back for the pie. Whatever you can do to get them to open their idea, their mind about the possibilities of Jesus, that's what we do. But watch what you say every day. You might not be talking to them. It might be how you talk to folk on the phone. It might be your customer service skills. When they hear you with those little old folk who's slow to understand and slow to talk, and you don't have no patience with them. You, you don't talk to them like they should be. And, and maybe they know at home, they got a mama at home who's struggling like that. And if you'll talk to them folk on the phone like that, you'll talk to their mama like that if she called in. Be careful what you do. Be careful what you say. Look, look, you call me light and see me not. You call me the way. Follow me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and acknowledge me not. You call me fair, but you love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble, but you serve me not. You call me just and fear me not. You call me master and obey me not. And so he says, if I condemn you, then blame me not. You never accepted what I gave to you. Not only should you watch your word, you also ought to give generously. Learn how to give to somebody, sacrificially. Sacrificially. Give. It's one of the best, day, best ways to remind yourself that you belong to the Lord is to make sure you give. I love this statement that I heard Denzel say a few weeks ago. I mean, I'm sure you said it some time ago, but I saw this interview of him, Denzel Washington, who probably has more money than a person can reasonably spend in a lifetime, just spending money. So he finds ways to support people. And he's a believer, unabashed. He believes in the Lord. He was raised in the church. He infuses in his work, changes movie scripts so that it has meaning from a theological standpoint. And his pal, I think it was his pastor, it might not have been, but it was a, a minister who had a show, was asking him about how he supports people sometimes. Um, and, and it may have been when they asked him about Chad Bozeman, how he provided a scholarship for Chad to go off and learn how to become the great actor that he was. Denzel didn't know who Chad Bozeman was. He just paid it because I think Felicia Rashad or somebody called and said, there's some students up there at Howard that need some help. Can you give them some scholarship? And he said, yeah. He wrote scholarship, sight unseen. Why? Because that's what givers do. The same Denzel who's walking in an army base, and he saw the housing that they have, the army folks, for, uh, for soldiers who've been injured in combat, and they make housing for them. And he's walking along, and he asked the man, how much do you want them houses? The man said, well, based on how we get the materials, it probably costs about $25,000 a house to put them up, roll them check. 
build one for him. Same Denzel was asked by the preacher. He said, why is it that you find yourself in this space? And he said, because I'm in this life right now and I've been blessed. And I remember not having calf fest. First time I went on a date with my wife, she had to pay for the calf. She was working <laughs> regularly. And he said, but it's selfish. Got real serious. He said, but it's selfish. He said, I can't tell you how selfish it is for me to give. He said, I can't tell you the amount of joy I derive from being able to help somebody else. I know they're getting a blessing of something they need, but the joy I get in being able to give to them is you can't put a price on. And you think that just because you hold everything, you're rich. I came to tell you that the joy of helping people brings you a satisfaction you never had before. Just give it. I can tell you this. Give it. He'll give it back. He'll bless. But don't just give it so he'll give it back. Give it in the right way with the right attitude and God will keep on blessing you. And let me tell you this. If you've never stepped into a period of time, I don't care what Crepo Dollar says. Not many people do, apparently, either. But tithing is money management. That's all it's saying. It's saying, I'm going to arrange my life so that I give a portion of what I have from the Lord. I'm going to leave it with the Lord. And he says, okay, I'll take that, and you can do what you want to do in respect, with, with respect with the rest of the other 90% in this context. But when you live in such that you don't have any money management skills, you find that you can't take care of none of your obligations for real. When you make sure every month I got a piece I'm going to break off for the Lord, that means the rest of what you got to have is in line. That, that's what you find happens when you, learn how to, when you learn how to tithe. It helps line up the rest of your bank account. Because if I got to make sure I got the percentage or whatever it is, 5, 10, 20 if you want it to be, that means I got to make sure the other, the balance is okay so I can always give back to the Lord. It's money management. It's resource management. And so I'm, I'm advising you, I'm, I'm urging you to explore the possibility. If you're not there, and I'm not the one who's going to stand up here and tell you, start with 10%. No, I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you if you can start with 2%, then start giving consistently 2% to the Lord. And then if the Lord blesses you, go to three. Move to five. And before long, you'll find yourself in a space where you're being devoted to that and you understand what it does to the rest of your life. And the last thing I'll tell you is surrender to his sovereignty. Just surrender to his sovereignty. Surrender to who he is as the Lord. The litmus test in determining whether you're following Adonai is to ask yourself, have I surrendered everything to him. Lordship has two meanings. On one hand, lordship means complete possession by God. But on the other hand, it requires, watch this, this don't feel good, complete submission by Jesus. Complete submission. I surrender all one of my favorite things. Now that's me to sing that. I, mean, I, I just love it. All to Jesus I surrender. 
all to him I freely give. Just a beautiful, beautiful hymn. And so I want you to do this for me as I close this morning. I want you to do this. I'm asking you to. You can do it if you're able to. I want you to bow your head. Everybody. I want you to bow your head. I want you to accept the fact already. Whether I say it or not, it doesn't change the fact that he owns everything. All right? He owns everything, including you and me. He owns us. We're called his servants. Now, if you are ready to give him everything, then I want you to, while you're bow, uh, bowing your head, I want you to just make a fist. That's all. You ain't got to do this so nobody sees. Just make a fist. Make a fist. That's all. Just make a fist. Just, just make it. Now, if you're ready to give him everything, you're ready to acknowledge to him that he can have everything. And all I want you to do is slowly open that door as an indication, Lord, I'm willing to give you everything I got. And so doing, you're opening that fist and saying, him, I'm giving it to you, Lord, but you also make it possible that he can give back to you. Just, just open, open the fist. I want to remind you that God never cheated you on anything. He gave the very best that he had to you. He gave you the one, the only son that he's ever had so that he could be your first savior. But also he gave him to you so that he could be an example of how we can live so he can be your Lord. And so if you've already accepted this gift from God of Jesus as your Savior, then I celebrate you today and ask you to lead today letting him guide you and follow him. But if you've never accepted him, then I extend an invitation to you today to let Jesus Christ be your Savior. Make an acknowledgement today and say, Lord, I believe you died for me and I want to give my life to you. The way we do that in this church is we make a public acknowledgement. So if you're here today and you want to make that acknowledgement, I invite you to come. Be a part of our church family. Be a part of our church family. Be a part of this church congregation. The doors of our church are wide open. If you've already got a baptism experience in your life, but you've been looking for someone, somewhere to fellowship, or maybe it's time for you to come to a church family, then the door is open for you as well. Whosoever will, whatever the case may be, let them come right now. Because of who you are, I give you glory. My Lord.